Welcome to the American Grown Podcast, hosted by Austin Sullivan. The American Grown Podcast will focus on people from different walks of life and their journey to where they are now. Now, turn up your volume and settle in for a great episode. Hi, I'm Austin Sullivan, and I'm your host for the American Grown Podcast, recorded inside the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Today, we have Alisher Aminov, a young world traveler who's helping build up his community brick by brick and a founder of his own educational nonprofit, Yellow Brick Robotics. Alisher, welcome to episode six of the American Grown Podcast. Thank you for having me. For our listeners out there, Alisher is the youngest person we've ever had on our podcast so far at the age of 19. Alisher, take me back. You were born in Uzbekistan. Yes, Uzbekistan. So what was life like? And then from there, you grew up from the age of 6 to 11 in Indonesia. So what was that like? Help educate me and, and our listeners out there on what life was like growing up. Yeah, it was really interesting, I suppose, going from one place to the next. So like you said, I was born in Uzbekistan. Um, I lived there until the age of three, um, when then we moved to the United States. We're in the United States for a little bit before going to Indonesia, where I spent a large chunk of my uh, growing up time at that point. Uh, I don't have too much that I remember about Uzbekistan necessarily. My parents were both humanitarian workers, which is why they were there. That's actually where my parents met. My mom was a country director for an organization within the region and met my dad that way. And then when we moved back to the United States, or I guess moved to the United States for the first time, for me anyways, my dad pursued his education, continued on, and then became a country director of an organization in Indonesia. So my background in general, at least where my parents are concerned, really is, um, it stems in nonprofiting in general. Ultimately, though, that really defines a lot of my upbringing in general was from moving from one area to another, working in different humanitarian environments. So with Indonesia, we moved there in the wake of one of the tsunamis that had there. And a lot of the work my parents were doing was helping the region redevelop as a part of an organization that an American based organization in the region called Food for the Hungry. Okay. Um, So like I said, with Uzbekistan, there's not too much I remember there outside of just early experiences growing up and exploring outside. I was a very active child growing up, which really carried throughout the rest of my life. And in Uzbekistan, there was a lot of opportunity to be able to go out and explore, which was huge. Even at a young age, like that really began to define, I guess, my personality and some of my characteristics in being very investigative. So then when we moved to the United States, um, I went to school here for a little bit, and then we went to Indonesia, which is really, in terms of my core memories, where life really begins for me. Okay. Um, like you said, I lived there from the ages of 6 to 11, and that was a really... Indonesia, in general, is a place that will always have a special place in my heart, simply because I really appreciated the biodiversity that was there. So I had the one aspect to it where my parents were humanitarian workers, so I was always exposed to humanitarian aid and nonprofiting, which... I think in the moment didn't really mean a whole lot to me. Obviously, I was just a kid and my parents were working, mm-hmm. but it's something that I'm always able to look back on as I've grown up and continue doing my own work after that. So that was a very important part for me, I would say. But in terms of the biodiversity, you know, having the ability to be able to go out and continue to explore was critical for me. Um, I really, growing up was not a huge fan of school, to be honest, and being able to be in a place such as Indonesia where In a lot of ways, it's safer, oddly enough, to be in a place like that because in the United States, with how populated 
just any places, even like Lebanon, there's mm -hmm. a lot of threats that go into that. And you can't exactly be out running around in the streets because there are cars. In Indonesia, while we lived in a relatively well-populated area, it was more of a suburban type place. And I was able to just have a lot of autonomy within our development, which was huge for me because I began to really um, cultivate, I guess, my investigative spirit during that time. And I was really able to uh, learn about a lot of the not necessarily just um, the agriculture of the area. Obviously, there's a lot of plants and things of that nature, but also the animal species. From that time on, my real passion, I always wanted to become a herpetologist from that experience, which is effectively, it's like a biologist that specifically studies reptiles. That was okay. all my passion was at yeah. the time. And I think that really, while today that doesn't really relate to my the purview or the work that I do now, I think it really began to instill an investigative and kind of bold attitude in me, which has helped me a lot in life. I'm just going to say a curiosity and adventure, uh, kind of that, that's the vibe I get mm -hmm. from you, you know, very curious and always learning, um, and how to make things better. So at age of six to 11, do you remember what you would do for, for fun? Like, was there a certain sport, you know, any kind of games you would play there? I mean, life is so different. Um, and I only know what I know here in yeah. Lebanon County, but honestly, like the day was set pretty much. I had my school, but for me, anytime I wasn't in school, I was outside. We were fortunate in the area that we were at to have a number of families who spoke English. So while there weren't a lot of kids who spoke English, there were a couple that we were able to meet and become friends with over time. So in general, a lot of my time after school was either hanging out with a few kids who were in the block, right. but a lot of it was just exploring outside. For whatever reason, even though my... I guess the perimeter of where I got to go and like look out, obviously being six or between six and 11, six can't do too much. Yeah. Yeah. But it really gave me an opportunity to be able to just explore. So for me, I religiously set my, the time of my day around going outside. If I had a break during the day, uh, like between school, I was outside. As soon as school ended, I was outside doing something. And that really defined the majority of my time there. Now, do you still keep in touch with any of those friends? Do you still have any of them today that you talk to? Absolutely. That is the great thing just with technology in general, being able to keep up with someone. I think for me, I found that it does become fairly difficult to keep in touch with people just in yeah. general as you're going about life. Mm -hmm. But I have been able to keep in touch with a number um, of the friends I had in the area, but also a lot of the people we met, which is really special to me. Actually, I was talking to, uh, we had a like a substitute teacher who helped us a lot. I was just talking to her yesterday. What a small world, you know, like you said, technology um, can bring us so close together, communicate mm. and, and see old friends or, or even family that we haven't in a while, whether they're, you know, living here in, in the U.S. Or, mm -hmm. or abroad, you know, we still get to communicate with them. So now your your parents were humanitarian. Remember anything? And did you help out with any of the causes that they were there for? I remember, I think a lot of the time we were there, my parents were you know, cautious about including mm -hmm. my brother and I who were there with them just because it's a foreign place. You don't necessarily know what's safe or not. I remember I had an opportunity uh, at least on one occasion. I'm trying to think if I can think of another, but at least on one occasion, I was able to go out with my dad to one of the semi-remote villages that were on one of the islands in Indonesia. You know, as I look back on my life, I look at that time, that phase as really defining my interest and acceptance in people. Okay. When you're yeah. a six to 11 year old kid, honestly, it's really difficult to, I guess, lump people in a box when you're constantly meeting new people and the majority of people you're meeting with don't necessarily look like you. So I think in general, I was from a very young age, acceptance was something that was instilled in me because 
for most of my time, I was the one who had to be accepted by others. And I think that experience getting to go out with him then was really interesting because it creates, you know, where we were living, we kind of were able to create our little, my own microcosm of being able to be in a foreign country, but still had people who speak our language who, and still had a lot of some of the comforts of, you know, living in the United States and being able to go there and experience that was very interesting for me because it was very different. It was also anyways, very interesting to see the community that a lot of these people were able to develop. Ultimately, you have to when you're really in these some of these remote areas. So that was extremely rewarding. Um, it was really interesting to meet a lot of the other foreigners who worked with organizations as a part of the organization my dad worked with, there would often be like work retreats or things of that nature. One of the parts of you know living overseas is because you're not a citizen of the country you have to get your visas renewed so we had to leave the country every two months which means six times out of the year we had to either go to another country for some kind of a conferencer mm -hmm. um, meeting or we just had to do it to renew our visas and that was really interesting because you meet a lot of the other foreigners who are also in a similar situation yeah. but then you get even more i guess cultural diversity or exposure to culture diversity how long of a process then to renew? I don't, I don't know. It's just really simple. It's really yeah. so. Is it like a day or is it like a week? You or? really just have to go. I remember at one point for a very brief time we were living, we lived in Thailand and literally oh, wow. just for that, you know, our two months came up. We just had to cross the border into Myanmar. We were there for probably two hours and then we just crossed the border. Oh, right okay. Back. So fairly so quick it's process. It's a really quick process. Yeah. A lot of times, like I said, it would either be associated with some kind of a work meeting for my dad specifically, gotcha. or we would just make a weekend out of it. So wow. that was really interesting because it gave me a lot of experience traveling from a very young age. In, in the form you filled out to be on the podcast, you mentioned 15 different countries you visited mm -hmm. so far in your lifetime, which blows my mind. Can you say uh, you had a favorite place that you visited so far? It's hard. Every place has, you know, characteristics that make it very much its own. I would say Thailand is a place that will always be very special to me simply because in the United States we see so much so many things are already to develop are already developed mm -hmm. and the way we have them I guess we're adding on to them in a fairly safe way. We can't get too wild with some of our development because a lot of it is pre-existing. In Thailand, the city we visited a lot was Bangkok, Thailand. And with that, because they were developing so rapidly, it was just always very interesting to see how the city would change. Um, some of the things that I grew up custom with, like in the United States, a mall, for example, like a mall mm -hmm. is maybe a three-story building that's generally laid out uh, vertically as opposed to horizontally. In Thailand, because especially in Bangkok, because of how condensed things were, malls were just skyscrapers, which was very interesting. That was something that I got to experience or pretty much my only understanding of a mall was something like that, which was interesting than moving back to the United States because it was very different. So I think Thailand is somewhere that will always um, hold a special place in my heart. South Korea and Singapore, as well as two different countries in um, Asia, their development is simply remarkable. Just what they've been able to accomplish in the time they've accomplished it is really interesting. A country in Europe that I really liked, quite recently actually, I visited Cannes in France, which was a completely, I'm usually, when we visit, we visit large cities. So okay. Cannes is a fairly, like it's a well-populated city, but it's not on the same scale as say Paris, for example. 
the unique architecture really blew my mind. I just in the United States, obviously, the country's not that old in comparison to other places. Right. Yeah. So if you go like going throughout Europe, depending on World War where World War II affected specific areas most, you have architecture that's hundreds, if not thousands, of years old, which yeah. is really interesting. So I really like Cannes in France is somewhere special, and I really like Switzerland as well. With Bangkok, I don't know if you ever saw uh, the Hangover, the mm-hmm. series of movies. Mm-hmm. So I, I I picture something like that, and where you mentioned the malls are all kind of skyscrapers it makes sense because it is a very tight kind of living space everything's built upwards mm-hmm. compared to outwards yeah it makes sense they have to build straight upwards again to reference that form i'd mentioned a little bit earlier you had said and this again this blows my mind but i shouldn't be surprised now because i've had quite a few guests on and they've all had different stories mm-hmm. and different things they've done uh the one gentleman uh, he was an mma fighter but uh, anyway you had mentioned you caught a king cobra at a young age do you remember that? And how did you come about a king crow? Because they're they're deadly. Very, very deadly. I don't like when I think back to how old I was, I probably was around eight. It's something that I remember quite vividly just because of how, I guess, unique of an opportunity and experience that it is. You don't really go out and think, is this snake that's in front of me potentially going to be able to kill me? Like you don't really think of it in that way. So I remember we went to our local pool. The pool had this little, it wasn't really a playground, but it was kind of like that. There was a swing there. And I would often go over there just to look in the bushes and see what there, what was there. And the one day I went over and there was this small, it might have been a foot and a half, like snake that was like a really pale color. It almost looked like, I, as I think about it, I always think of it as like a melting gummy worm almost. Like it really... I thought like it looked almost like a toy, honestly, that was just sitting out in the sun. And I remember walking over to it like I always did at that time, trying to catch reptiles. And, you know, I was inspecting it. Seemed like a regular snake. In my mind, I was like, this is a great opportunity to catch it. So at the time, my, you know, eight-year-old mind, I wanted to be safe. So I grabbed a plastic bag that I used as a glove and I found a bamboo (laughs) stick. And I, you know, called my brother over and we began trying to catch this small snake. Not, you know, really thinking that it could have been anything. Right. now, is your brother younger or older? My brother's younger. So okay. that was an interest. Like, I was definitely the one leading the charge where that was concerned. Yeah. So I remember we, like, go charging into the bushes. It kind of, it slithered up into the bushes. And I remember going into the bushes. And at the time, I thought I saw its, um, its head frill. And I really, like, even then, I didn't know that cobras were in Indonesia to begin with. So I'm like, this yeah. is, this, I'm just going to proceed. So we catch this snake. And the people come over who work at the pool and um, we had um, our teacher was there with us. She uh, this was like one of our break periods and she asked them what type of a snake it was. And they said it's a baby cobra. And I just I, I refuse to believe that. I'm like, but I caught it like it's fine. Like it's in my hand. I'm holding it still at the time. And so we put it in a bottle and we go home and then we ask a couple more people and they're like, it's all cobras. So that, I guess part of the reason why I remembered as much as I do is, first of all, you know, you don't usually catch, you know, a baby king cobra. Right. That's really different. And then also with that, it's crazy how you learn things. Because of that, we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do with it. Like, we didn't just want to let it go because, you know, we could try get back in the house and then hurt someone. Right. So we found out that there was a facility in Indonesia. It's only one of two in the world. I don't know if that's changed now, but at the time, one of two in the world. And what they do is they have all kinds of snake species. And what they do is they harvest their feces and turn them into some form of a like a cube that farmers buy and put around their farms to scare rodents no away way. from coming into the farm. So at what? the time, this was one of two facilities like it. Yeah. And we go to it and it we like we drove to it to be able to give them the snake. 
And it was just fascinating to see how this, obviously oh, yeah. you don't think about it. And then once they explain it to you, it makes complete sense. Like, of course, having this, like the repellent, the snake repellent right. effectively to keep rodents out made perfect sense. So that was a really cool learning experience. Definitely something I'll remember yeah. forever. Well, people are amazing. Like uh, that's so out of the box. But like you said, it makes perfect sense um, to keep away those rodents and those pests because they're, they're threatened. You know, your world traveler, you catch a, a, a baby king cobra and now... You know, parents and everything. You, you come home here to the States, mm-hmm. uh, to Pennsylvania. Is that where you've, you've always then lived here in Lebanon County? Yeah. So my mom okay. is from Lebanon. So oh, my okay. mom and all of her family is from Lebanon. So when we came back, this just this is where we came home to. Gotcha. You graduated, I want to say Cedar Crest, but I could be wrong. So correct me if I'm wrong. No. So when we came back, yeah. we were really... It's actually interesting, I guess, our coming back to the United States was a bit of a transition. So the first time we came back to the United States was in 2014, early 2014, so like January. And what we found is while, you know, my brother and I were always Americans, from the moment we've been born, we're always Americans, our idea of America was fairly isolated to six-week furloughs that we would come back to. And coming back to the United States, the culture shock was just, you know, ridiculous, honestly. And while I I was able to figure it out a little bit better than my brother, my younger brother took it really harshly. For him, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, well, you're home. Like, you should be happy you're home. And for him, yeah. he was four when we went to Indonesia. So really, Indonesia was home to him. Like, he always believed, like, identified as an American, but that was where he felt comfortable. So after a few months of trying to get readjusted to the United States, my our family decided that we needed a little bit more of a transition from a cultural perspective. So my mom, my brother, and then myself, we took, it probably ended up being about a six-month trip throughout a few countries in Europe and then um, back to Indonesia, back to Thailand, um, just in a way to learn about different cultures so that we were more um, comfortable with Western culture in general. Yeah. Um, but also we, you know, justified it as kind of a learning experience along the way we, from a historical perspective, learn about the countries that we're in. Um, and also at the time travel expenses were just, they're nothing to nothing in comparison to where, what they are now. Right. So it made a lot of logical sense. So for most of 2014, all the way into very early 2015, we did that. And then coming back to the United States in 2015, we was a whole lot easier, a much easier transition, honestly. But still, just to play it safe, we enrolled mm-hmm. in a public cyber school called okay. Kama Charter Academy. So in the end, especially as I began um, at a young age, you know, pursuing yeah. different work experiences, sticking with the cyber school op- our option really worked for me. So that's what we did throughout high school. Commonwealth Charter Academy, they are out of Harrisburg. Yes. It's, yep. Yes. We uh, here at here at color tech we actually do some printing for them really um yeah we just actually just like last week did um a coloring book they have and um the different pages are actually artwork from the students so i thought oh, it was such wow. a yeah it is yeah. a really neat piece and uh it's what a small world again because you know here we are doing work for them printing for them um tom is their their marketing director so what do you think was the hardest because I know it's kind of hustle bustle very busy cities like philadelphia mm-hmm. new york i think of that you know and and being born and raised in Lebanon County, to me, I don't like going into those cities all the time, If I, especially if I don't have to, mm-hmm. because of the driving and the mm-hmm. noise and the crowds and things like that. Do you think that was some of it coming from uh, Indonesia over to the States? I would have to assume it was part of it. Um, yeah. I think from a culture perspective, like 
Indonesia was technically more populated than Lebanon. Like even where we were, I believe technically is more populated. It's shifting perspectives quite a bit. In Indonesia, we were definitely foreigners in comparison to everyone else. And when we came back to the United States, we weren't foreigners in the sense that we were Americans and this is America. But from that culture perspective, like even Lebanon City, Lebanon County has a very, you know, Lebanon-centric culture. Mm -hmm. And I think coming back and just becoming immediately becoming immersed in that was very difficult because for us, considering the fact that we, you know, hopped around so much from a young age throughout my life, like I don't really see myself as having much of a culture because I was constantly moved from one to the next. So coming back and going from not really having a culture outside of identifying as an American to then being in America in a specific environment that has its own very rich culture was kind of a shock. Yeah, I would say so. I don't necessarily know that it was just population change. Way of life is very different. Yeah. I would say. Now, in your your high school career, throughout your travels, and in life in general, do you have any uh, mentors that you keep in touch with or look up to? I have a lot. Of, I am very fortunate um, to have had the opportunity to meet a lot of people in life who have really guided me in. It's hard to, you know, totally define it. I was very fortunate in school to get become fairly close with a number of my teachers throughout the process. So there were a number of teachers who really um, I look up to a lot. And I guess with the school, while a cyber school, you don't really traditionally become very involved. For me, my family, especially my mom, was very focused on making sure that we began to, you know, redevelop social skills in the United States. Mm-hmm. A cyber school doesn't have a traditional classroom setting. If our school had an opportunity such as a, uh, a field trip or had some form of an internship, she would sign us up for it. While most cyber school students don't have an experience being on teams or anything like that, I was on the engineering team for my school and I was also, I had an internship with my school. Uh, Commonwealth Charter Academy, because it's a cyber option, can use funds in different ways. So they developed in Harrisburg an aquaponics lab. So yes, I had. An, I'm so glad you brought yeah. that up because I've I've actually seen it. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I was hoping you bring it up. And sorry to cut you off. No, no, I no. want you to keep going then. But honestly, I saw it. Uh, Tom gave me a tour of the Harrisburg campus, and I was like, "This is so cool." And I couldn't remember. I knew there was big fish, and there were plants, mm-hmm. and it was indoors, and it really blew my mind. So yeah, if you could talk more about the aqua aquaponics, aquaponics. Yeah. yeah. So the yeah. lab is actually. I think at the time, and things can change from one year to the next, at the time it was the largest educational aquaponics lab in the country, which really was awesome from a student perspective, being able to be immersed in that. And um, this the facility, they call it AgWorks, and it's one of uh, CCA's initiatives to be able to give students real-world experiences from a young age. So they have AgWorks in um, Harrisburg, I think they have TechWorks in Philly, and then MedWorks in Philadelphia, which is a really interesting concept in yeah. general. But with the aquaponics lab, the lab had an aquaponic component, um, an aeroponic component, and a hydroponic component, which are all very similar but operate just slightly different. So aquaponics is what what most people think of when they think of a lab-based agricultural system in the sense of having fish that create waste then goes into their, um, it is a tank that turn takes the nitrates, I could be messing it up, but takes the nitrates from the uh, feces that are toxic to plants and turns it into a bacteria that the plants can actually consume. So then that water is filtered into the plant beds, which then gives the plants um, the nutrients they need to grow. So it's an enclosed um, lab-based agricultural system that theoretically is incredibly sustainable because everything is enclosed. You could even use the produce to feed the fish. Um, and it can be operated year round. So that's aquaponics. Hydroponics, which I actually worked with primarily, is 
instead of having fish that produce the nutrients that the plants need, everything is uh, scientifically or mechanically added. If you need specific nutrients, if you need specific mm -hmm. vitamins or things that the plants need to be able to grow, you have like vials of these things that you actually inject into the water basins that then cycle the water through. So what I did, and then aeroponics, just I guess very briefly on that, is yeah. all it requires is water. It does not require any form of a nutrient. So that doesn't okay. necessarily grow produce, but a lot of like plants, such as small cactuses and things like that, they are, would be a form of um, the uh, aeroponics. They are also like, they hang up in these really interesting orbs that hang up from the ceiling, and that's how they get the light. So it's a really cool system. For me with hydroponics... Um, the system that I worked with, and it was a really cool opportunity because my bent at the time was business. With engineering for a number of years, I focused on the business aspect of the engineering uh, challenges. And with that, we were I got had the opportunity to develop a business system for microgreens in rural America. So that was the uh, internship that I had. I was supposed to develop that business plan. And with that, I had a really cool opportunity to grow microgreens, which if you're not familiar, it's basically plants that they harvest at their infancy that have all the taste of the adult plant, but because of its small profile mm -hmm. gives a really, it has a big flavor punch. So a lot of chefs will use these microgreens because they're so small, they can use them as garnishes that have a lot of flavor. What happened with that was, which made it so interesting in this area is Pennsylvania, typically, especially with these modern agricultural uh, systems, they start in California and they migrate towards the east. And in the case of uh, Pennsylvania, this was one of the only microgreen growing stations that was commercially built in the state of Pennsylvania at the time, which was really interesting because realistically, like this is truly cutting edge technology yeah. uh, for the food market. So that was really interesting. But in terms of, I guess, wrapping that back into mentors, whether it was like had the coaches that I had on the engineering team, whether it was the uh, facilitators I had through that internship, but also a lot of the people that I met professionally, like I, in terms of people, there were a number of people who really contributed quite a bit to me throughout my stages of development, to be honest. So I don't necessarily have a list of people. Mm -hmm. There's just, I, I'm incredibly great for the people that I've been able to meet. CCA definitely is a, a head of the, the curb or head of technology. When I got to tour it, like you said, it's such a high-tech facility. It's almost, for the listeners out there, just something like out of Star Wars almost yeah. to me. That's what mm -hmm. it reminded me of. You know, the lighting, the machinery, the plants, and, and the big fish tank. I mean, these fish were huge, some mm -hmm. of these fish. This is something out of the future. And I had got gotten to tour the facility, I think it was 2019, it was like right before COVID had hit, mm -hmm. um, and it was very eye-opening to see that. So now I'm guessing when you mentioned these uh, herbs or these uh, plants, and so that facility probably sends to like New York and these big cities to the restaurants, do you think? My internship was based, so the plan that I made was based for rural America. The idea okay. at the time was... Uh, states like Alaska, obviously, their seasons, the harshness of their seasons make it virtually impossible at certain periods of the year to be able to grow anything agriculturally. So they're almost entirely dependent on export or, or imports rather into the state to be able to feed their people. So if for whatever reason, some catastrophe were to happen and roads were to shut down, they would have an X number of days of food. So the idea was if you could create a sustainable enclosed agricultural system, mm -hmm. um, Theoretically, that would revolutionize uh, food production in these rural states. Oh, for sure. Um, in terms of what we were actually producing, we started developing partnerships with some of the local restaurants in uh, the Pennsylvania area, specifically Harrisburg, so okay. kind of south-central region of Pennsylvania. I remember the one time 
like right towards the end, right before I graduated, we had the opportunity to go to one of the restaurants that purchased uh, not just microgreens, but all kinds of produce from us. And one of the meals that we were able to have was actually the microgreens on it were microgreens that we had grown. So that was a really rewarding experience, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Come full circle. Alshur, what would you say is your passion? What are you yourself passionate about? And then we'll get into, you know, the yellow brick robotics and things like that. You know, it's an interesting question simply because I've had a lot of opportunity to be able, I guess, to investigate myself. In general, I find community service to be something that I'm specifically passionate about a lot. For me, I'm not necessarily mode. I really like the analytical side of, you know, developing solutions. And while a lot of the experiences that I've had with um, analytics and solution development have pertained to business specifically, for me, while I have a lot of respect for people who are in business, I just find that I really like being able to create solutions that help people in a way that is entirely, I guess, communally motivated. So in general, community service is really what I'm passionate about. Based off of your your passion and, and building a community, you had started uh, the educational nonprofit mm -hmm. uh, right around 2017 mm -hmm. uh, yellow brick robotics uh, i know a little bit about it from meeting you at, at nick services mm -hmm. um, where you hold some of your classes i'm 30 years old but i've always been a big fan of legos mm -hmm. you know growing up uh, when i was younger elementary school even middle school even now um, still building sets putting whether it's star wars or you know now they have harry potter lord of the rings all mm -hmm. these nerd all these things that that i'm into as, as kind of a an adult nerd and and things that i like um to build and it was neat because my one friend uh, who lives in mechanicsburg uh, a good guy he built it was actually a like a grand piano a lego set he put it together and it connects to his phone he hits a a song and it'll play the keys will actually move and everything in elementary school and things like that the lego sets didn't have all these kind of electronic parts to it but can you talk about yellow brick robotics how it started um you know who came up with the name and then what what that program does absolutely absolutely like you said, Yellowbrick Robotics started in 2017, but for me, it kind of dates a little bit before that. So while we were living in Indonesia still, so I guess a few years before, I had had the opportunity to start a Lego Robotics program as a student. So I was able to go and learn all of these different things that pertain to Lego Robotics. And that's where I learned about the system in general. I, you know, my experience with Legos had always been like the sets or just having a big box of Legos that right. you can build things with. And when you know, someone said, hey, do you want to do Lego Robotics? As a kid, that sounded just really exciting. I thought I was going to be able to build whatever I wanted. And what I found was there was a very methodical way that the program worked, and it was really, you know, educationally minded. So when I was a kid, at first, it was a bit of a shock. To, mm -hmm. I wasn't going to just get to build whatever I wanted. But as I began to do the program, I began to really realize just how expansive and how much you can accomplish with something as simple as a Lego. So the system really works around print. It, it helps educate students about principles of machines, physics, uh, it works with programming, robotics, and really gets into problem solving in general, which really, I guess when you look at educational opportunities, I find that mm -hmm. to be really the whole package. Like that gives you, and especially you can then at the end, once you learn these skills, because they're Legos and they're modular, they're not necessarily, they, they can, you can turn it into whatever, you have a really rich creative element to what you're building. So I had learned about that program and then from that learned that Lego, the company, had an educational department, which is where these kids came from, Lego Education. After we moved from Indonesia, I kind of put that behind me. Obviously, I didn't you know, forget about it, but I was moving on to other things. Right. And when we moved to the United States, like I said, a lot of my 
academic pursuits really stemmed around business. I really liked the concept of business. And for a while, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to start a business at some point. So when I was starting at about 13, I really began trying to come up with this business plans. I wanted to be able to figure out how to develop something. And, you know, Yellow Brick was definitely nowhere near the first idea that I had. Um, I really like being able to create the small business plans. I think one of the more ambitious business plans that I had was I had found that some people will when they have like old mobile homes, we'll just try to give them for free to get rid of them because they're old. Mm -hmm. So I had found someone was trying to do that. And my plan at the time was to try to find a way to haul that old mobile home to a campground to then try to rent it out as like an Airbnb. Yeah. It was a little ambitious at the time. There were way too many um, specifics that went into it and wasn't able to work. But that really, the fact that not only I was able to start trying to figure it out, but that my parent, my family was not intolerant of the concept really led me to continue going on. So I came up with all kinds of business plans for the next year. And I can't take complete credit for Yellow Brick. My mom actually suggested the idea of starting a Lego school simply because it was something that I had a knowledge of. I was not very uh, too many years removed from it. So it was something that was still fresh in my mind. And realistically, in terms of cost, getting into it is not nearly as expensive as, you know, trying to trying move to the mobile Start home. an Airbnb, yeah, exactly. which is a great concept, uh, um, but much harder to execute. Yeah. Much harder to execute. So the plan, you know, in terms of simple beginnings, it really started small and we wanted to see where it could go. So I created the business plan. I presented it to my family. My family, I had a few family members who contributed the initial cost. It wasn't very expensive mm -hmm. uh, to buy. I think we had five kits, which the kits are very small. And that's really, from an adult perspective, fascinating that you can learn so much from, small, from such a small kit. From the kid perspective, part of the learning curve for me was to make it engaging in a way that kids didn't just look at this very small box of Legos and say, what can I do with this? Nothing. Right. Um, so what we did was we bought the first couple of kits. We created the business, the rough business plan. And then I made, I contacted the local library in Lebanon to see if they would host a summer program. So the idea was they were a little hesitant, reasonably so. I, I was 14 at the time, 14 year old trying to propose this. Yeah. So they said, we will set up a three week program and just once a week for three weeks. So three classes. And then if everything goes smoothly, we'll see about extending it to another three weeks. So we did the first three classes and things went, I think much better than honestly any of us thought. My, I found that for me, it became really easy connecting with the students in a way that they were receptive because it wasn't like a kid working with an adult. It was, you know, a teenager working with a kid. Yeah, and I think sure. the kids were able to identify me and with me in a way that they would not have otherwise. And also considering the fact that for me, I was coming at it from a youthful perspective. My concept of, you know, education was very hands-on. So we created a very alternative uh, system of education. Instead of sitting up at desks, we sit on the floors. Uh, uh, in the floor, we then bring in different videos, learning tools. We do all kinds of things to be able to really try to cement these ideas mm -hmm. in a fun and engaging way. So after we really developed that out, um, honestly, the plan was to try to roll it out as out as roll it out as a business. But ultimately, what we found, and I didn't know this beforehand, it was really a learning experience, was that the majority of the students in Lebanon, I didn't know the statistics at the time, but the majority of students in Lebanon really struggle socio from a socioeconomic perspective. And that realistically for them to be able to afford this program in a way that would make it you know, profitable and sustainable as a business concept was really unlikely. So then we were presented 
um, I was presented with the situ- a situation where I either had to, you know, change the market and go to like Hershey, Harrisburg, or Lancaster, right. or completely redevelop the model to make it work for Lebanon. And ultimately, uh, we made the decision. I think we really made the decision to focus on it as a nonprofit during the second three-week program. We had met one of the students that we had. His name uh, was Aaron. He was in fourth grade, but he. I found out very early on, I could not read or write to grade level, which was really startling to me. I didn't expect that at all. Yeah. And what we found was that regardless of the fact that he couldn't really, you know, f- participate in the sense of filling out his notes, he was just so fascinated and just really passionate about the building element of what we were doing. And his mind works so incredibly brilliantly from a mechanical perspective. Um, and we really wanted to be able to facilitate people like that. We wanted to encourage them to pursue education and make them know or help them to know that even if they struggle in one aspect of life, that doesn't mean that they're not intelligent enough. And yeah. I, don't, I don't want to cut you off, but no, I just want to just kind of segue into that. It, just because you're not capable in one thing, you know, everyone's good and has different personalities, different traits, different mm-hmm. characteristics uh, that separates us and makes us all unique with the yellow brick robotics like you kind of touched on. Um, and I agree with everything you're saying 100%. Working your mechanics, but also creativity, um, getting your hands on, your your brain is thinking, you know, how do I put this together? How do I make these pieces move? So it's it's not just um, reading, writing, marith- uh, arithmetic, things like that. Um, it, and, you know, everyone learns differently. So just because you're not where people say you, you should be doesn't mean, like you're saying, that you're behind. You just learn a different way mm-hmm. or see things a different way. So I think what you're doing is fantastic. And uh, I'm glad your your mom, you know, shout out to your mom for being like, hey, let's let's yeah. do this. Let's give this yeah, a yeah. go, you know, mm-hmm. seriously. To spin off, so you still have Yellow Brick Robotics mm-hmm. going on. And um, I didn't mean to cut you off. Was there... Other, was there, no, I or, just that's where it really started. Where it started? And yeah, we wanted to redevelop it in a way that was guerrilla warfare business model in a way yeah. that was really nonprofit centric, that focused on um, cutting out as much expense as possible. Namely, you know, we don't have a facility that we work with, so okay. we have a lot yep. of community partners. And through the years, have really been able to grow in our partnerships within the community and have had a really tremendous um, influence on many of the students that we've had. Your classes, whether it's a week long or whatever it may be, roughly how many people attend? How many young students uh, attend? Yeah, so it depends what we're hosting. So if we're hosting a summer camp, it's a little bit different than if we're hosting a fall uh, semester class. With our fall classes, which is what we consistently do the most, we try to keep it fairly small, actually. Our sweet spot is somewhere between eight and 10 students. And the reason why that is, is we really want to focus on in- the individual. Yeah. Uh, for me, and part of this, you know, is the advantage of being young. I can really jump around a lot in a classroom. It's almost mm-hmm. like, it's a, like, it's feels like a workout by the end of it, honestly, just going from one student to the next yeah. and really focusing on giving them the attention that they need to understand the concepts that we're teaching. Uh, so, With that, we try to keep the number of students to a smaller count just so we're able to work with them more closely. Like you said earlier, they can connect better with you because you bring that energy. You're so passionate about Mm -hmm. it. And I'm sure even though they're they're young students, you know, learning from you, but they probably sense that like, hey, this guy, this young man really cares, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's not like an older gentleman talking down to them. Yeah, you're on their level. You're interacting with them. So another thing I thought interesting, you have yellow brick robotics. You'd mentioned on the forum you sit on a board of roughly four other nonprofits. So one of them mm-hmm. is Yellow Brick. Okay, so that's well, one of the okay. nonprofits I sit on the board of. But there are three other uh, Lebanon-based nonprofits that I sit on the boards of. The first, it's called WEPA, which is Working to Empower People for Advancement. Okay. It is a workforce development nonprofit that is the 
intent is to use a multilingual education approach to help people who don't speak English find uh, learn English in a way that pertains to the fields that they're trying to pursue. So say, you know, if you live in Puerto Rico, Puerto mm -hmm. Ricans are American citizens. So if you are a really phenomenal carpenter in Puerto Rico and you move to Lebanon, um, we, the, I, the intent anyways, is to help give you the English skills you need to really be able to flourish in your field and also give you the technical legal and, uh, legal know-how that you need to practice, uh, your, f uh, craft in Pennsylvania. So that's kind of an element. There are a lot of different, I guess, spin-off aspects that digress from that. We try to really create an inclusive model, but the idea is to help people who uh, to focus on underemployment rather on unemployment. A lot of people who are employed are underemployed in the sense that they have a lot of potential to be able to contribute yeah. to society in a lot of really meaningful ways, but find something that holds them back. We try to eliminate that and give them the opportunity. So that's the first one. The second one is Making a Difference of Lebanon PA, which is an organization that has been around for about eight years. I joined on the board last year. Um, and the, in, the mission of Making a Difference is really in the name. We're trying to make a difference in the lives of the people that we're serving through events, through educational series, through different initiatives, such as one of the things we've been doing a lot re uh, throughout the few last few years is we'll do book bag giveaways. We do um, donation drops for things like food and clothing. We have Christmas meals, things. We just try to be an active uh, member within the community. As an organization, that is the mission of making a difference in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. Um, and we work in both in the city and the county. Uh, so if you want to find more information about that, both of those organizations are online. And then the third one, it's called Communities That Care. This one is a, I would say is a little bit less hands-on in the sense of not necessarily working with individuals on a one-on-one, -on -one, but the idea with uh, CTC is that you find statistical data that cre that represents the makeup of a city as well as some of the issues that they specifically are struggling with compare that with state and national data as well as data from other local municipalities to be able to create solutions that best specifically target those issues right so in a way that is more i guess from an analytical solution based organization that's really what they focus on is finding solutions to solve targeted issues within a community so that's the third and then the fourth is my nonprofit yellow brick you're so busy. How do you how do you fit that all all in? Are you very it, good with like keeping schedules and things? I, I I'll have to admit I'm not the best with time management. Okay. I get better with time, but it's really like I consider myself a ping pong ball in the sense that I just bounce around from one thing to the next. Um, it's really interesting. I think it doesn't necessarily require a special person to be able to do it. It's just you have to from the onset accept the fact that your schedule is going to be really variable. I might have one day where I'm you know, busy from morning till night. I might have one day where my morning is free and then I'm, you know, busy all the way until 10 o'clock at night. I might have uh, a Tuesday that's free and a Saturday that's full. It really depends on one week to the next. And right. so it's really interesting from that perspective. And I think an advantage of youth is that I have the stamina to be able to keep up with it. Um, right. So it's a lot of jumping around. Yeah, I was gonna say you have the energy. It's phenomenal what you're doing for Lebanon County. I did not realize how many nonprofits and how involved you were uh, mm -hmm. throughout the community. Now let's take it back to 2020. Cause I kind of like to ask this question. I think it's still kind of relevant and I think yeah. people can learn from it. You know, COVID, how did that affect your life in 2020? Um, and not to jump ahead, but then I know 2021, but you, you had moved to Alaska mm -hmm. to do some work there at a Christian school. So I'd love to hear about, you know, COVID and 
how it affected your life, and then the move to Alaska. In many ways, I'm very fortunate in mm -hmm. the sense that I had no immediate family member or no one that was close to me contract COVID and pass away from it. So that was a true blessing. From a planning perspective, it completely destroyed every plan that I had. So I graduated high school in 2020 or January of 2020. I had started a, um, a plan to graduate about a year and a half early. And the plan with that was I didn't want to rush straight off to college. I was 16 at the time. I didn't think I was mature enough to do that. And I wanted to really take the opportunity to work during the summer and then spend some time traveling. That's I wanted to be able to do that before going to college. And obviously, when I graduated, everything seemed fine. We started hearing about COVID, but we didn't really know quite how dramatic that would change our lives. But then come April, it became fairly clear that mm -hmm. the, just about everything I wanted to do was completely dashed. And at that point, it was too late to apply to colleges for that cycle. Um, the whole college application cycle had just completed. So it really put me in an awkward position because I had to completely redevelop um, all of my plans from that moment on. It worked out really I would say from I feel really blessed by how it worked out. So the, the first thing that I was I wanted to do um, was as soon as I graduated, I was still on the engineering team. So this that allowed me to really just focus on the engineering team. We had won our state competition and we're preparing for nationals. So that took me until right around the end of the school year. So that really took a lot of my time. And then from that, I had gotten accepted into a summer program with the Harvard Summer School. So then for the next seven weeks that really took up my time uh, and that was something I could do at home. In terms of work, I was actually quite fortunate in that the company that I worked for at the time to you know raise money to be able to travel, while they had to scale back some of their employment for a fairly short period of time, they didn't have to close. It was a transit company so they were able to, they were deemed as essential and I was able to pick up some hours and be able to work with that. I, for that period, the course was about seven weeks long. That wasn't necessarily a problem, but I really didn't know what I was gonna do afterwards. After that course, at that point, I really just wanted to take a break. I told my family that I was gonna take two weeks and devote it to myself, but probably two days after that course ended, I got contacted by a gentleman from Alaska who had, I had met uh, during a, a missions trip two years prior to that. So he contacted me and said that they were looking for people who would volunteer. He had, I had mentioned about my nonprofit in the past and he asked if I would be interested to come up and host some programs. Um, at that time, the vaccines started in, rolling into Alaska a little bit more effectively. This was coming right towards the end of the year. So they, well, I guess, no, the vaccines wouldn't have been out, but in general, it was just safer because it was more rural area. Yeah. That was the thinking oh, anyways. Sure. Yep. Within two weeks of finishing the class, I, along with two other volunteers, jumped on a plane and went to Alaska for three weeks. And really, I helped around the school where I could, but really my job was to focus on my program. So that's what I did. I ran three weeks of my program. Um, and at the end of that, he had offered me a position with the school. Um, nothing was necessarily defined at that point, but it looked like some form of a teaching position, but also their office manager was, she was pregnant at the time and they knew they were going to need someone. And right. they asked if I might be interested in being an office manager. Um, so at the time of leaving, I started missing Alaska a lot. I really enjoyed my time there. So we made a plan. I contacted him. We came up with the plan of me coming back. So in January of 2021, Right away at the beginning of the year, I moved back to Alaska and I, the main thing was to make sure that I was their office manager, but then I also got to work as a, 
math tutor and a science teacher. A science slash history broke up at, toward between the two the duration of the time, um, and that was a really incredible experience. I don't know if you have specific questions about it, but that took about I was there for about six months. So you're about 17 years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, Alaska. You went by yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you live by yourself in an apartment or mm -hmm. was there housing set up or did you live with a family? Like what? Cause I'm just thinking like when I was 17, it was football practice and uh, call of duty, you know, playing mm -hmm. video games yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Like what was like the average day like and how was living? I mean, you were by yourself in Alaska. Alaska is really interesting. I found that all the reasons that made it, that I thought was going to make it different, didn't make it or difficult, didn't necessarily make it difficult. So Obviously, when it's a lot, when you think about Alaska in the winter, you think about the cold. Right. I found that while the temperature in Alaska was, I mean, it was negative thirty. I think the worst day I was there was negative forty. So it wow. hovered around negative fifteen, negative twenty, and then occasionally would go negative thirty, and very rarely negative forty. That sounds terrifying to yeah. someone who lives in Pennsylvania, where the worst might be twenties. I was surprised, though, by the fact that it wasn't really that bad. They have a lot less humidity than we do in Pennsylvania, and they have virtually no wind. Where Fairbanks, which is where I was at, mm -hmm. uh, they have virtually no wind um, at all. So really, it didn't. The, the cold didn't bother me nearly as much as I thought it would. The I found that the darkness really started getting to me towards the end. Uh, Alaska, during the time that I was there, I think there was light for about five hours a day for, so for about 19 hours a day, it was dark, wow. which in some ways, like from like, it's kind of, I guess, stimulation overload because it's so much of the same. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that was cool was Alaska because they knew obviously they had these periods. They had so many more street lights, which ended up being really weird coming back to Pennsylvania because yeah. we will, we do have pitch black in Pennsylvania in Fairbanks, because they had so many lights, it never really felt like it was absolutely pitch black because there was always something that was illuminating and keeping things bright. So that was so weird coming. It took me probably three months to get used to pitch black back in Pennsylvania afterwards. So the cold didn't really bother me. The night, the darkness bothered me more than I thought it would. And even more than I realized, I started realizing it once it became brighter longer. Um, but what really got me, and I didn't realize this until summer came, was just everything is covered in white in like two feet of white so if it, the roads it's just a sheet of ice completely white like they have cinders so it's not dangerous necessarily to drive on but it's all white everything is covered in white that really once summer came and things started melting like this stimulation of just color again was really an interesting experience yeah. like going from just everything the same color to having a diversity of color really so changed just my perspective quite a bit um so again in some aspects the climate some things were easier than i thought of it would some things were more difficult in terms of like going up there by myself it wasn't it was the first time that i had like left home for any long period of time so i was worried i was fairly fortunate in that i didn't have to live by myself the pastor who was the pastor of the church but also ran the school he uh, I stayed with him and their family. So I was able to stay there, which really helped me a lot in the sense of I wasn't, I never had to feel like I was all by myself. The coolest part, and this is some of my like best friendships cultivated during this time with the people that were there because everything is so closed down during the winter. The teacher group that was up there was extremely tight knit. And I began like, 
I, the teachers that I work with, I became very close with and their families I became very close with. And you really like the core group of people who worked at the school and also helped at the church really became very close to me throughout the time. And that, um, the friend, it just, that was probably one of the most rewarding aspects, honestly, just the sheer friendships that I was able to have. So the work experience was difficult in that it was a very new experience for me. I hadn't done office management before teaching. I kind of had a grip on, but it was a completely different form of teaching. Instead of being able to have this alternative laid back teaching environment, I had to have structure with the way I taught, which was actually a fairly steep learning curve for me after so many years of teaching from an alternative perspective. Um, so the beginning, it was really challenging. It got easier as I became more comfortable, but it really, I didn't realize how much it shaped me until I came back to Pennsylvania. And I just looked back on the year and thought about how much more mature I was at the result of it and how much more capable I felt after it. Yeah, this this may surprise you, but we actually do have some listeners um, in Anchorage, Alaska. Really? So yeah, I didn't know if there's anyone in particular you would like to Shout out. Yeah, there were two families that were, well, I guess technically three. So there, there were the Calhouns, which um, they were the family that I stayed with. And then there were the Haddocks, which actually really odd occurrence, I suppose. So I moved to, I go to, let's, I guess the first time I went to Alaska for the first three week time. And then I met this group of, they are from the Pacific Islands, uh, an island called Koshrai, but they moved to Hawaii. So there's this group of people who are from Koshrai and Hawaii who are just in Alaska. Hmm. Re- like op- complete opposite parallel. Yeah, so they yeah. were the Haddocks. Um, they were just, uh, so there were the Calhouns, the Haddocks, and then the Hartmans. So these three family groups um, that I just really became close with, honestly, throughout the period of time. I don't, I mean, I guess I can't speak for them. I honestly look to, to these people like their family at this point, just yeah. because the winter is so harsh there. Like you really, the make or break is the people that you know and how I guess close you are with them. So that all of those people who are there, I look at them all like family at this point. Um, it was just, the friendship was phenomenal. Honestly, yeah. their friendships. Technically a home away from home for sure. Oh, absolutely. You, know, you could absolutely. easily, sounds like easily go up there or call them if, if you were in the area and they'd be more than welcome. After going up to Alaska, you came back to Lebanon. And if I'm right, this was right around the time you ran for city council, which again, blows my mind because yeah. you're you know, young and uh, running for city council, you feel like someone in their 40s, 50s or, or older, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. From a very young age, I've always been interested in politics. So not necessarily from a partisan perspective, but just the structure in general. Mm-hmm. It was a really, I guess, the scientific breakdown. Again, going back to my analytical interests as well as my solution-based interests, it was something that became very intriguing to me, especially considering all of the different countries I had visited. I like studying their political structures. So that was always on the back of my mind. So when we moved to Lebanon, uh, studying the local politics was something that just came naturally. So I had for a while gotten an understanding of the local political happenings. And then when I, so when I moved to Alaska, I had put all my college applications out and I was really just in a state of, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I had college decisions come back and I was put into, I just, I, I felt a little bit restless in general after having all of these work experiences the idea of locking myself down for four years at school I felt 
I, I struggled with it and I wanted to also see like, because I had all of these experiences, part of me thought maybe it's better to wait, develop myself a little bit more and then shoot for um, better schools to see if I can go somewhere that might Makes be a sense. little bit more stimulating to me yeah. after all of my uh, work opportunities. So we came, I moved back to Pennsylvania. I, I moved back to Pennsylvania on June 10th, three days after I turned 18. And I really, again, for me, I was a little bit restless. I didn't know what I was going to do at the time until I guess college application season would come back up. Mm -hmm. So I started looking at the local political scene and I noticed that there were a number of seats that were up for election that were just uncontested. For me, it didn't necessarily have anything to do with political affiliations. I just thought that people should have a choice. That's really like we have elections so that people do have a choice. I don't think that people should just get stuck with um, whoever's willing to run. Now, I'm very thankful for anyone who's willing to run. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I think people should just be able to have a choice. I continue to do more research. I under, be at a better understood the position. And I saw that I had the opportunity. The way it works that way, if you miss the primary process, you can still get on the ballot as a candidate. You just do it as an independent, which I actually liked from the perspective that I could keep. I mean, we're talking about city, the city council of you know a fairly small city, not right. anything yeah. massive. Correct. We don't. I don't really think we need to bring po like big city politics or big state or national politics into Lebanon City. So mm -hmm. I was really happy about that, and. I did my research. I started reaching out to people who I thought would help me along the way. Developed a pretty, just my, I, I developed my plan and my model and then went from there and began the process of managing my campaign. Definitely seemed like a, a good grassroots movement for you. Good uh, step into the fray, if you will, of, mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. politics to adventure into that, I thought was, it was impressive. Last couple questions, but what do you think motivates you every day to be the best version of yourself? I think it's my goals. I'm a very goal-oriented person. And like I said, because I'm very passionate about community service. So for me, I wake up every day and my mind goes to, A, what am I doing to better myself? And B, what am I doing to contribute to the people, to contribute to the lives of people around me? And I think that mentality really drives me. I think also putting myself in positions where I have to be responsible to other people, obviously considering like the amount of, I guess, groups that I associate and work with, mm -hmm. I have a lot of accountability from those groups. So I would say between my self-motivation that's derived from, I guess, my goals-oriented outlook in combination with my natural interest to serve people, but also the accountability I have of the organizations I work with really keep me going. Your passion for nonprofits, for community, um, and with Yellow Brick Robotics, things along those lines. Now, if people and our listeners out there want to connect with you and follow along on your journey, what is the best way throughout some social media handles, um, websites, whatever you have? Let's mm -hmm. hear it. Absolutely. So if you're interested in contacting me about something that pertains to Yellow Brick Robotics, we have a Facebook page, Yellow Brick Robotics, but also a website that's yellowbrickrobotics.com. Um, you can find more information about my work. Uh, a lot of the, my work I put on my uh, Facebook page, Alisher A for Lebanon PA is where I consolidate the majority of that. If you want to friend me on Facebook, that's absolutely fine. I'm Alisher Aminov. And then if you want to find information about my work within the community, specifically Lebanon, uh, you can visit Alisher A for Lebanon PA.com. Um, and that's the easiest way probably to reach me. Gotcha. And before we close out, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know? No, not at all. I think 
their questions were fantastic. Perfect. All right, Alisher Aminov from Yellow Brick Robotics on the American Grown Podcast and the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to see more American Grown content, follow along on Facebook and Instagram. Username American Grown Podcast. If you received any value, please share this episode with friends, family, and coworkers. And lastly, subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to be a featured guest on the podcast, please direct message or email Austin at americangrownpod at gmail.com.